0: Wherever you get your podcasts, thanks for listening.
1: ES Audio. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm John Weeks and this is The Leader. Ask anyone renting in London and they'll tell you the same thing. It's fiercely competitive, expensive and costs are going up. And government data backs that up, showing that more than 13,000 households approached councils in the capital for help with housing just in the last quarter of 2022. For many people in the capital, the state of the rental market means a lack of security over where they live, and can leave some feeling powerless. At the sharp end of the renting crisis, there are now record numbers of families in temporary hotel accommodation with more than 75,000 homeless children in London, enough to fill the Royal Albert Hall more than 14 times over. Just 6 months ago, 28-year-old mum Nicole Bent and her 3-year-old daughter were living in rented accommodation, but now find themselves among those families living out of a hotel room. I met with Nicole at her temporary accommodation in a travel lodge in North London. It just here. Yeah.
2: Sorry
1: for the mess. So it's just you and your daughter in here?
2: Yeah. So that's our kitchen area because we don't have a kitchen so we can just use that desk there. I was actually told just before January that when my tenancy ended um, that it wouldn't be renewed because my landlord wanted to sell up, um, sell his property and so it was hard because even though it was given an extra two months to kind of look for places in the private market it was really difficult to find somewhere and so I was trying to be as proactive as, as I could but at that time I had to reduce my hours. Um, I was actually working as a personal banker at the time. My hours were severely reduced which kind of impacted my affordability when looking elsewhere for something and so it was a really tough period of time in January and February. Um, I then had to approach the council because I was Effectively sofa surfing with my daughter Because I had no other alternative And when I kind of ran out of options I then had to Approach the council and let them know that actually I am homeless And so on March the 2nd um, I was placed into temporary accommodation At Travelodge And so since March the 2nd We've been within Travelodge And at first obviously you're really grateful Because you're happy That you're not homeless anymore And so I'm still grateful for that but then you just realise that actually it's not very suitable in terms of living in the hotel. Financially, it's quite difficult in terms of food because there's no fridge and there's no cooking facilities. And so like even something as simple as like making a sandwich or being able to store food that you've eaten is impossible. Um, so making food for like my daughter to go to nursery, for example, being able to save anything that's been consumed within that day. So... Yeah, takeaways became something I was doing quite often, just to make sure that my daughter ate. And then you realise you actually don't have enough money. And um, when I first approached the council, I was told after calling them quite relentlessly. Actually, it, it took a long time. I didn't have a caseworker when I initially was there. So about two months in, no, sorry, a month in, sorry, I was given kind of food, food bank details. But that was actually through me contacting the MP. And so I was given the code, but. The one that I'd gotten from Enfield Council was too late because the food bank was kind of um, under renovation and then I was referred to the Tottenham one. But actually what the food bank could give was very limited as well because they normally cater to people that do have cooking facilities or do have storage. And obviously the only things that they could really give were things like instant noodles or instant pasta. And some of that pasta had to be done in the hob so we couldn't actually use that either. And so it was just emotionally draining in a way because you kind of realise oh I can't actually even feed my daughter very well or I might have to sacrifice or I might have to actually resort to dry foods like crackers um, which is quite difficult with a three-year-old.
1: So it it sounds like to be honest you've had uh, knock after knock as you say with hours being cut then you had to to leave the place you were in then the food bank that you were supposed to go to, you couldn't go to, and then you go to the food bank and they don't have the, the right amount of things. How have you found coping with that, as you say, emotionally, while also you know, being a mum and, and looking after your daughter?
2: To be honest, um, especially initially, it was really hard, like really difficult. You're in a position where, yes, you do feel grateful to obviously be here, but there's so many setbacks that actually it can be really, really um, demoralising because you just can't do the basic things. Also, in terms of communication as well, there were times when you know, you're trying to just get some kind of contact or information and you're not getting any um, because the departments are really busy and there's so many people that are in the same predicament or maybe even worse than you because they may be homeless on the actual day and they're dealing with uh, quite a few cases at a time. And so when you're calling or trying to get few, through, you're not actually getting a response. And um, even though that was explained to me as to why, later on in the line at the time it felt like actually i'm being ignored and yeah it almost felt like i was basically a a failure really because i'm unable to kind of provide the basic things for my daughter you know and she notices things even though she's only three she picks up on the fact that we don't have certain things and it's really sad to obviously hear her say things like oh we don't have a kitchen and that we don't have this or we don't have a home and it's that really hard but then on the flip side just trying to keep positive positive. And um, remind myself that actually, even though, yes, it's not the best and it's not the most suitable, we still have somewhere for now. Uh, we can still obviously try to proactively look. But even that is hard in terms of um, being able to rent privately because there's quite a lot of discrimination, even though they're not technically allowed to discriminate. There is discrimination and it is difficult to actually get somewhere.
1: That's it. And I understand... Um as you mentioned it yeah the discrimination with landlords is it they'd rather sort of choose someone who's like a young professional single on their own than a mum who has to rely on benefits how do you sort of experience that that kind of discrimination is it with conversations you have with them or with council or how do you sort of witness that really
2: so there are numerous ways um there's the classic of the agents that will say they'll call you back and you never get a call um and that normally happens after you disclose the fact that you will need um, some kind of assistance or help with the benefits, Um, so they'll be really excited. They'll tell you about the viewing that's about to come up, they're about to email you, and then once they find that out, you don't hear from them again. Um, And there have been agents that have actually been more transparent. They've actually said to me, no, that the landlord wouldn't want this. We would be fine to accept it, but the landlord says no, so we have those. And then there are other agents that will say that you don't meet the affordability criteria, so even when you are working full time, they will say that actually the benefit income that you receive, even though it's consistent each month, doesn't count. And then on top of that, the affordability requirements are massive. So that even for one bedroom, at one point it was 42K and like, I, I, I don't end that. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was just really, and then there'll be sometimes a two bedroom property that has lower affordability, but then the landlord wouldn't want you. So it's quite hard to kind of juggle.
1: Let's take a break now. In part two, Nicole explains the changes she thinks are needed to avoid people relying on temporary accommodation.
2: If they can afford the rent, should it really be an issue, especially if they have a a guarantor? And if that is off-putting to landlords, maybe it's something that doesn't need to be disclosed.
0: wherever you get your podcast, Thanks for listening.
1: So the, in terms of going forward now, you sort of talked about, you know, trying to be positive and thinking about, you know, we have got somewhere now. This isn't going to be forever. What is the sort of the plan that, that the council suggests or has sort of been put to you for going from now? Is it a case of as, you, as you're sort of put, put up here, you can effectively save? Is that the, the, the idea that they sort of give you or is there... What's the the way that they're they're supposed to be out of of the hotel?
2: Um, So I'd say that council is primarily um, pushing people to look privately um, because of the lack of housing at the moment, which I've just described kind of the difficulty in doing so. Um, I have had someone from the council suggest to me that we could save, obviously, whilst we're here because you don't actually have to pay bills while you reside at the hotel. And that is a great point, but actually because there are no cooking facilities your money is being drained elsewhere so at first I thought even that was a positive but actually it isn't (laughs) um, because food is actually so expensive so yeah I say primarily it's it pushes us towards private accommodation there is a team that kind of allocates people towards temporary accommodation as well but I think the properties are very far and few between so there's not really a time frame on when somewhere will be found and obviously we have to kind of do the due diligence to kind of look for ourselves.
1: So going forward, Nicole, what is your plan? Do you feel like you have one? Are you planning to appeal to the council or anyone else that you can for more help? Or is it just a case of, as you say, hoping that somewhere comes up that A will take you and B is actually affordable?
2: So my plan for now is to kind of um, keep trying with private accommodation, just because in terms of suitability, you're able to kind of choose where you want to be able to live and see yourself um, for at least minimum of a year. Whereas if the council do find somewhere for you, it could be anywhere and the conditions may not be great. And um, I've had that kind of experience where I was offered somewhere that had mould and damp. So it's not something that I would like to revisit. <laughs> so, yeah, i have just proactively trying with private accommodation for now. And I'm trying to increase my odds in terms of affordability to the best of my ability. And I have a viewing, so hopefully that goes well.
1: So what would your what would your message be to... Whoever is in charge, I guess, if it, whether it's the government, with rules around renting and no-fault evictions, or landlords, what kind of law or rule change do you think would actually avoid this kind of situation that, that you found yourself in?
2: Well, I think there are so many nuances to this, but um, the first I would say would be about creating more affordable housing for those that need it there's obviously an issue with the lack of housing that we have at the moment. Secondly, I'd say that there's a discrepancy between the amount that landlords are allowed to charge for their rental properties and the amount that's given by the council or by universal credit to kind of assist those that need it. So, for example, in London, depending on what area... I think the highest rate for a two-bedroom, hypothetically, is 1,300. That's what you're allowed to to rent, but the prices on the market for a two-bedroom property exceed that. So it's 1,400, 1,550, and so it's literally impossible for some families to be able to afford that rent. And so they may need to be a cap, but also if there is a cap, will landlords be inclined to rent? I'm not entirely sure. So there needs to be some kind of common ground or maybe actually the rate in terms of the assistance need to go up to match what the landlords are charging. I feel that there need to be more clear-cut rules on the process for people renting that require assistance as well if they're going through the private um, sector because there's certain ways in which they can avoid renting to people that are on assistance whether it's a landlord's choice should landlords be privy to that information if they're able to go through referencing successfully and the council has verified that they can afford it, then do they actually need to know that they come from that <laughs> that background or that they need that help? If they can afford the rent, should it really be an issue, especially if they have a, a guarantor? And if that is off-putting to landlords, maybe it's something that doesn't need to be disclosed. And in, in addition, it should count as affordability if that money is being provided to someone monthly because at the same, they're always receiving the same amount of money. So for it not to count means that it's a way to kind of eliminate people that need it because they, they won't be able to, to access the, the properties, basically.
1: There's more news, interviews and analysis in the Evening Standard newspaper and at standard.co.uk. That's the leader. Thanks for listening. We're back on Monday afternoon at four o'clock.
0: Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season, when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham.